G'day and welcome to Radio Nodes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Merch and today is the 26th of January as we release 2020. Australia Day for some, but I've been spending the morning with my Indigenous mates and we've been having a chat about the relevance of this very day. Um, Some deep conversations were had and it's been quite an emotional couple of weeks as well, particularly when I recorded the chat you're about to hear today. One of my um, close relatives was uh, passed away. Could have spoken to the lead singer of the group, but I've chosen our guest today based upon the fact that I have been a huge admirer of them and their music through the bands they've been in throughout the years. Orgie March's keyboardist is Keenan Box, who since the mid-90s also performs as part of the Black Eyed Seasons, as well as working with Rob Snarsky and other great Australian musicians. Being behind the keys comes with a particular view of live music, and also during the recording of new music. Between shows for Orgie March's On The Quiet Tour, Box spoke to Radio Notes. The On The Quiet Tour wraps up in Adelaide, South Australia. Are we getting a feel that this is the end of the line for the On The Quiet Tour for Augie March? It is the last show we have booked, On The Quiet or otherwise. On The Quiet was something that Augie did about uh, 10 or 11 years ago. And we just did a few shows in Melbourne and Sydney. I think we were just looking for something a little bit different at the time. We'd been playing... A lot. We were really busy um, through that period. Um, and just the idea of doing, it's sort of an unplugged concept, just let us just approach the songs we'd been doing a bit differently or put a few different songs into the set that were just going to suit that style a bit better. Earlier this year, I think it was probably a similar sort of thing. We were just looking to do something a little bit different and decided to revise that. How much does that play a part, doing the acoustic, that allows you to have a more integrated live sound? Yeah, I, th- I think that's, um, I don't know whether it's necessarily more integrated than when we do it with the full lineup, but I don't think we slavishly reproduce the album versions anyway when we play live. There's often a bit of debate in the band room, but, you know, it should be, that's not the same as the recording or you did this on the recording, why are you doing that now? And different members of the band, I reckon, probably have a different approach to that. Personally, I you know, have a bit of a, an interest in sort of jazz music and I quite like the idea that you just you sort of turn up with the body and the mind that you have on the day and you know the song and you, know, you might play it completely differently than what you have before. But I think, yeah, on the quiet, sort of just doing it that way gives everyone a bit more license and a bit more of a, a need to reinvent what they're doing. Has the culture on the road between the members changed over that last decade? Um, probably. We're not on the road that as much. Uh, look, it's a, it's, a funny, it's a funny sort of dynamic. I, I wouldn't, you know, there's not a lot of, there aren't a lot of, really close friendships within the band and that's sort of always been the case. Um, it can be quite fractious, really, from um, just the way we communicate, just setting things up or 
rehearsing, recording, performing. There's quite a lot of creative and personal tension at work there. Um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, I don't mean to paint to kind of um, negative a picture of, of what we do. I think the time when the, the band is most at peace and most connected is on stage performing. You just, we just get that. There's, there's a, there's a place we can get to that the five of us, um, that only we know and it works. And it often, the thing about our gigs, and I found this quite a lot with the, the On The Quiet tour, was it might take a few songs into the set to actually get there. But it's a, it's a pretty sweet spot when we, we can find it. Uh, and when we find it, we, we have to try and hold it and stay there. The old penny drop moment. So possibly yeah. on the tour, in the touring van, there might be a bit of a rustling of chips and a bit of eyes across the car or whatever's. Once you're actually yeah. settled in about that second or third number, the penny drops and and you're there. Yeah, but look, it, it could be the first song, and it and it could be it could might be the second last song. But there is this feeling of uh, you know sort of push and pull and people trying to find each other. It's a bit deeper than just musically. It's a little bit spiritually, just trying to find, you know, you're trying to find each other's mind. But we've been doing it for, you know, the five of us have been playing together for almost 20 years. And I think that's the thing I like almost most about the band is that we're we're still here and all of us are still doing it Um, because you just can't, I don't think you can replace that, that knowledge of each other that you get from just playing, having played together for so long. We had a period of about five years where we, well, we didn't play at all, actually. Um, but you don't lose that, that, you know, slightly telepathic sort of connection that you have. Being on the stage and listening to what everyone's playing and, yeah, you talk about eyes across the car, you're trying to catch people's eye and catch their ears make sense of it. Some of the songs are quite simple and easy to play and some of them are, are really quite difficult to really you know, nail when you're playing them live. My understanding is two and a half, so half of that five years, you were secretly working on a recording. Talk us through that yeah. and whether or not it was just two and a half years of silence and then something happened. And if something did happen in two and a half years, what was it at that two and a half year mark? Oh, I don't think I could, I don't know if I can timeline it that accurately, but we stopped, we, we did um, an album called Watch Me Disappear, which was a hard album to make. Probably, you know, those sorts of tensions that I was talking about probably started to escalate and it got a bit, it just got a bit too hard to keep going. And Glenn wanted to make a solo album and that, you know, that, seemed like a really good idea so we just stopped he, he for a while I don't I don't think it was even probably wasn't even two years before we started talking about doing another album but I, I like I think with with our band and probably most bands are like this it was it took a while to wind down there was a lot of sort of you know momentum and it was like you know this this big 
this big thing, you know, sort of kind of, we didn't stop really suddenly. We sort of wound down with a very long tour and a few few shows after that. Um, but once it stopped, it did take quite a long time and a bit of effort to get that ball rolling again. Glenn had moved to, he lives in Hobart. The rest of us were living in Melbourne. We were all doing quite a lot of different things by that stage. Just to get the songs for Glenn to write them, for us to get together and rehearse them, and then start recording. You're right, and mix it. It did, probably did take about two years, and we were just trying to put things in place to release and promote it as an independent band. We'd been on a, a big label up until then, so it was, that was quite different. Maybe the big thing was we just didn't feel quite so much pressure. Augie had had a long period first 10 or so years where the band had been known and, and quite popular and had a bit of success. But then about 10 years into the, into the career, we had, you know, we had a, a hit song and a platinum album, and that's great. You know, you really you sort of feel this, like this cushion of hot air comes up under you and lifts you up, and in, in certain ways things get a bit easier and they get a bit more exciting but they also get they also there's also more pressure and it can also become a bit more I don't know the business starts to take over and lots and lots of bands would talk about how you know the dark side of success you know it's not a terrible thing to have a have a song on the radio and people coming to your shows but but it, it did It'd probably be right to say stop being as fun mm. for a lot of us for a while. Coming back after a break, that pressure had largely dissipated. It wasn't that sort of expectation of following up a big song or a big album. Probably felt we could do what we wanted a bit more. But that aside, you know, I don't think we had changed that much. Bit older, bit more, a bit more mature, but also a bit crankier. There is a difference, though, isn't there, between a hit song and well, there's a difference between the song and the band when it comes to the stage for which your career reached. Do, do, do you mean that there was a lot of people that knew Augie March because of one particular song, and and that's all they sort of connected with them? They had their own personal story regarding that one song and how it fitted into their mm. life. I'm thinking, well, I can name many artists that this has occurred. Let's not make comparisons. But people then weren't focusing on the broader band and the wonderful discography that you had behind. Instead, they were thinking about their personal engagement with that one song. Yeah, that, that, that's probably true. I think everyone's got to, you know, a, a band can just put, the songs out there and the music and whatever meanings it has for them, uh, and then you know once it's once it's out there in the public, it, I, I think that's quite it's completely fair enough for the public to take it and make what they want of it and relate to it how they want. It did seem strange the shows that we're doing, where yeah, yeah, so much of that focus and. Uh, momentum of the show did seem to revolve around 
um, One Crowd an Hour as a song. A low point of that is when, you know, you had to put the song at the towards the end of the set because if you played it earlier in the middle of the set, quite a lot of people would leave after they heard it. You know, it wasn't that it was completely outside our style and the sorts of things we were, were playing, but it didn't, it really didn't really represent all of it. I mean, I remember when I first heard that song and you know, when we just rehearsed it, and I thought, you know, this is great. And it did feel like something that could be a hit to me. And it was. But at the same time, it didn't sort of seem like, uh, you know, you, you can't predict that for a couple of years of your life, your musical and professional career is going to revolve around those four minutes of music, which is sort of what happened. Yeah, I'm having flashbacks to seeing you guys performing with Paul Kelly and Lennon Cohen at one of those winery yeah. shows. And it was just, it was a brilliant set of tunes that you were doing. And then, of course, that song comes and then all of a sudden people are quiet and turning around. I'm like, come on. They've just done four <laughs> four or five killer heartfelt numbers. Um, yeah. While Glenn was doing his solo work, you've been spending or have been spending a bit of time with the Black Eyed Susans. What's the journey been like with the Black Eyed Susans for you? very long because that's uh, I've been playing with the Black Eyed Seasons for 25 years so it's quite hard for me to you know very quickly sort of uh, crawl through my memory banks but that was an amazing thing that sort of happened for me it was very very pivotal because it was sort of the point where I stopped in my early mid-twenties and stopped working an office job and wanted to really concentrate on, on playing music and joining the Black Eyed Susan, the band that, you know, had a reputation and albums and played shows. Susan's has waxed and waned for that, you know, for a long, long time. At the moment, there's not much happening. But, yeah, you know, I've been able to, you know, gave me a chance to sort of uh, take music seriously until then, it was sort of a hobby and something I really would have liked to have done more of, but I, I hadn't really been able to get myself in a position where I could. And this year, no Christmas show as well. So I, I want to think there's more Black-Eyed Susans in the works. I think there will be. So there's been some line-up changes, to, you know, just a bit of you know, shifting around of personnel. All the people in the Susans are really busy. I have been playing a bit with Rob Snarsky, who's done a solo album, and I, I helped out on that, and I've, I've done a few shows for that. So he's he's quite busy. Susan's have had a few times where it's gone a bit quiet, and but in the past it's always, uh, the band's always rebounded. And I, I think it probably will, but you never know. In that position that you're in at the Keys... What's your focus when you get on stage? What's the first thing you do as a keyboard player when you go on stage? I don't think I'm going to have a very interesting or good answer to this. I probably just get a little bit um, nervy about all the settings on my uh, keys, just where the you know the volume and the EQs and things, and that I've got the right presets. I, I don't really get nervous. I just don't get nervous on stage. I don't know, it's because I'm sitting down 
Um, I'm behind keyboards. I don't have to sing. Very rare occasions where I've had to sing. Um, I do get very nervous. Yeah, yeah, I feel something. I feel something a bit, a bit on. You know, I, I really think it's certainly with Augie, It's trying to. It's just trying to tap into the collective mindset. Trying to find where everyone is on that night. You know, that often fluctuates, and quite dramatically. You know, if everyone's in a good mood, I sit next to Edmund on bass, and I'm. It's quite important for the keys to sit well with. With space, I think. So I'm, I'm sort of trying to find him. Definitely trying to find, you know, where Glenn's at um, and his his guitar. That's often the the kind of the leading part, the rhythm part, or the you know arpeggio picked part that he's playing is often what leads the tune. So I'm trying to get in there. Probably trying to settle my mind a little bit, not think extraneously. That can be hard to do, you know, all different things that are going through your mind through the day. You've got to try and shut them out a little bit and just think about, you know, what you're doing there and then. How busy can your mind get during the day? You land in a city, you're on stage in about four, four to five hours, sometimes less. How do you, as you're saying, set your mind? What's going on personally in your head? I'm not asking you to list that, I guess, but to give us a bit of a vibe of where you're at. On a gig day, or a, I thought you were going to ask. I thought you were asking generally. But no, at a show day, show day is, is good because usually there's so much to do. Just just getting getting there, just getting everyone to the airport, getting to the venue, getting to the hotel. That takes up most of the CPU during a show day. On non-show days. Oh. Uh, I'm a bit. I think my mind's probably a bit agitated, and I have to try and focus on things. I find it a bit hard to sit still, a bit hard to relax. I've been doing quite a lot of um, quite a lot of yoga, which I think probably helps just to try and focus the mind. I've been doing a type of yoga called Bikram yoga, which is done in a almost sauna heat, which. Uh, physically wipes you out as well as um, focusing you mentally. The most famous person I know, at least here when they tour Adelaide, South Australia, because they did it in Pulteney Street and they were the only bloke in the actual session at the time, Sting from the police was uh, is a big proponent of it. I don't know much about Bikram yoga. So as you're saying, it's a heat-induced... What's, what's happening through that process? It's a, probably a mix of meditation and pretty extreme sort of endurance sport. It's a very basic fixed sequence of yoga postures, 26 postures, which is the same every time you do it over a 90-minute period. But the thing that's different about it is it's in a, a heated and humidified room, 42 degrees and high humidity. So those fairly basic yoga postures and stretches do become very, you know, they can become almost unbearably challenging after a while in that in that heat. It's certainly not for everyone. And I mean, I did yoga when I was young and I found it a bit, a bit boring, but this is very, very challenging. I just wonder about 
about the heart in terms of that humidity and heat. If you don't have a good ticker, I'm, I'm thinking I might have to give it a miss. The old ticker might not be able, not be able to cope with it. Yeah, I, I don't know of anyone dropping dead in a sick room yoga studio, but I've, I've, I've felt like I'm going to a few times. What's your diet like? Not that good. Didn't get that out. I don't eat a lot. I just feel like I haven't put quite a, as much care into it as I should over the years. At the moment, I'm, I'm trying to keep things pretty simple. Like I'll eat, um, try to I eat red meat and try to eat just meat, vegetables, nuts. I noticed on your keyboard that there's a Western Bulldogs 2017 membership sticker. I've worked for Western Bulldogs all my life. The 2017, that was the year after Bulldogs won their first premiership for, for 60 years. That was that was pretty exciting. Most kids are you know, following a football team. You know, at some point, you know, childhood or adolescence or even early adulthood, get to see their teams win a premiership or at least play in a grand final. But the Bulldogs were, I think, the only team that just had not been in a grand, not even been in a grand final for what was it, fifty, about fifty-five years. Even as a, as a, as an old man, it was it was uh, quite exciting when the team got into the grand final, and I didn't expect them to win it, but they did. I was glad I went. Oh, you went? I, I went. Yeah. Member of the Melbourne Cricket Club, so. If you're a member of the MCC, you can. There's a certain number of seats that are always kept available for walk-up members on the day. My brother and I got there. At, we went and queued up at. It was 3 a.m. in the morning. Make sure we got in and got a good seat. But by the time the game started, 12 hours later, I was, you know, I was ready for it. Well, hey, hey this is Jeremy Neal, and I'm coming up on Radio Notes. Talk all about life. And my new album, we were trying to make it out. Let's get back to Augie March. The latest record is now out. It's been out for over a year, in fact. Can we talk yeah. about the process of recording that album? Sure. Working with the late producer, Tony Cohen. How did that come about? And more importantly, how did it go down? I thought it turned out wonderfully. It came about really through a Melbourne producer, John Nelson, who was working at Studio Sound Park in, in Melbourne. And look, I wasn't that close to the organisation of that part of it, but John had sort of recommended that maybe Tony might like to work with us. He hadn't done much for a long time, but he'd just started to, you know, resume some production. But he'd only done one. He'd done, um, I think he'd done some producing for Kid Congo Powers. Um, but apart from that, he'd hardly done anything for quite a long time. And John sort of lured him, you know, almost out of retirement to come and produce Augie. And we did five or six tracks with him. And look, it was, it was great. He was just so, in a way, you know, he was completely, I'd probably say, probably fair to say he was contentious of a lot of the, modern technology, digital technology. He wanted to do everything with tape and not using digital equipment. I just hadn't sort of done anything that old school for a long, long time. 
I suppose in a way it was really more, you know, you, you just got that sense of really trusting, possibly, you know, trusting your ears more than your eyes. You know, you get used to looking at a screen and looking at waveforms and, oh, you look at two waveforms and say, oh, the bass is out with the, the drums, so we better fix that up. But you take that away, you're just listening to it. You know, there wasn't that ability to do, you know, 10 takes and then just stitch the best take together out of all those parts. You just had to play the song through from start to finish and listen back to it and decide what you liked about it and what you didn't. It almost makes it harder, digital technology, because anything is possible. I think because you have unlimited possibilities, in some ways you, you know, kind of... um not limit yourself, but it, it's it's good to just know you've, you've got to just get it right, play the song, get a take, but everyone's happy with everything they played. We've done some recordings where you you know you, you're taking the one instrument out of one take and mixing it with the, another other instrument from another take, and then taking different takes and putting them together, and it becomes really like a, a you know almost like a jigsaw of everything you've done. But that way of working, when we worked with Tony, it was it was just more old-fashioned. Tony's spirit, like as a producer, he was like a, he was a performer in the studio. He would he sought to inspire you with his energy as much as he tried to get the best energy out of out of you as a musician. And as it turned out, he wasn't he really wasn't very long. He didn't really have very long left. Um, and we didn't really know that much about that. I'd remembered him from a long... I'd done, done recordings with him a long time ago. He wasn't quite as... Um, he didn't have quite the same vim and vigour that he once had. But he, he wanted to inspire you with his energy. And, you know, and, and he, he did that. The five or six songs that we got from those sessions, I, I just thought they, they were great. And probably almost my five, six favourite songs off that album. You know, he did say something to the effect of that he wasn't going to come out of retirement for anyone, so he was he was keen to, to do this with us. Um, and I'm sure he was hoping to do, you know, do more, but it turned out to be the, the last recording set that he did produce, which was very sad. Being on keys, being that part of the band, when you see for the first time the lyrical prose for which an album is going to take that of Glenn as the, the singer-songwriter in that aspect, I would think, do you have your own thoughts about the lyrical content? Do you engage with it as you read it and go, yeah, this is a bit of me? Or is it? how do you engage with Glenn's lyrics when they arrive? Good question. Because I don't sing, and none of the guys really sing on the records, they, they do sing live, but I, I tend not to look at the lyrics that much. I do listen to them. And some of them are quite dense and arcane, and I'm listening to the music first and foremost because I'm trying to get inside that. And probably my main role is to give texture to the music Although as I go on, I, I, I'm more interested in sort of getting, um, you know, into the sort of engine room. I want to be part of the, the beat and the groove and the rhythm of the song. But I think I've always been in the band mainly to, to, to give different colours 
and flavours to the you know to the chords and the melodies. I'm not listening to the lyrics that closely. I usually get into them and analyse them much later. Sometimes they, re- they really grab me. I love the lyrics to I Hurtle Back to a Conservative Locker. I just love the lyrics to that one and the lyrics to When I'm Old. Let's bring it back to you. And the way to do that is to talk about one of your main instruments, the keyboard. When did Keenan yeah. first get introduced to the keyboard? I had lessons when I was at school. Um, I was pretty young, primary school, and I did lessons and I didn't mind it. I did a bit of practice. I made a little bit of progress, but not that much. And at my school, within a year or two, we were sort of shepherded into doing classical music exams. And I did very poorly in that. And I still remember in, I was about 13 and getting the lowest mark in the school. The only person to get a C for AMEB grade one piano. It was very hard to get a C. I think at that point, I probably drifted away. And then I, it was just sort of getting interested in pop music and rock songs and wanting to work out how to play them. And I was given like a little Casio, tiny Casio keyboard for Christmas. I would have been about 14, I think. Um, and, you know, it really had just the, you know, those ones with the minute little keys. But it did have, it would play minor and major chords if you played the key and set up the auto rhythm. So I was just sort of trying to work out little songs and I started to learn how to how chords fitted, how chords could fit together. And within a couple of years, we were sort of, you know, friends and I were trying to start bands at school. We had a band called the Blue Shades that used to play at the school assemblies and parties. Yeah, just kept at it and kept developing my interest and my tastes expanded. But I think it was always led by my ears a bit, you know, what, what, what I was listening to. I heard something, I wanted to get that feeling of being able to, you know, play that. Look back on those very early days and I think a lot of the information gets processed in a funny way, like times maybe just trying to play too much or too fast or you're just trying to be, you know, excessively technical or impressive rather than getting into the real, you know, the, the guts and the soul of the music. I think for me that took quite a lot longer. You're now teaching music. Does some of your memories of yeah. back then inform the way that you teach music? Probably should. I'm not sure if it does. Yes, I've been a, yeah, teaching music at university for 20 years now. Um, I'm teaching music to sort of young adults, I almost feel like um, the most productive thing I can do is introduce them to good, inspiring music that they might not know. I mean, I probably do get a bit surprised if people come to a music course and they don't really know who Bob Dylan is or they haven't heard The Kinks or they don't know Joni Mitchell or something. But it's not, not that unusual because you now those artists are a long time since they've been really um, mainstream. If I can get some of these kids into that, you know, what I think is really good by music or help them to learn how to play and write, that's about the best thing I can do. Yeah, ultimately, if they, whatever it takes to get them playing music with each other and exploring different styles and 
learning about other artists, things that might broaden their horizons, that's, that's about the best I can do for them. As we're saying, this is university, as you mentioned, young adults. Do you see, though, still a spark of passion for music and where music can take them? I see it in them, absolutely. I'm jealous of it sometimes. Um, look, you know, where it will take them after uni, it's, that's sort of an interesting question. Uh, I mean, if you study, study music at university, you can qualify to be a music teacher or music therapist. But there's a lot of other branches of the industry you might find your way into. Most of the students really just want to play more than anything else. They want to play or they want to sing. And I think that's great. Quite a few quickly are becoming semi-professional musicians, playing shows and making recordings. I think doing music at, at, at university, not with anyone, is a really great way to make connections with people, a different type of type of interaction. And you'd probably make, you know, sort of friends in a way that you, you don't in other sort of walks of life. Do they teach you as the teacher new things? Have you learnt things from your students, particularly relating to music? They're more up to date than I am, for sure. Yeah, yes. Hear things they were playing or listening to that I wouldn't be aware of. You know, I try to, I do listen to, you know, I listen, I listen to Triple J quite a lot and I, and I feel like a little bit lost. It's like, you know, swimming in an ocean that, I, you know, that I can't swim. I just don't really know. I don't know the scene or the the bands that well. Um, I do. I do hear quite a few things that I like, but then I might forget who it was. I just don't have that sort of same sort of connection with popular music culture that I think I once did. And yeah, yeah, students definitely helped me with that. So if we take you back to your university age, what music mm. were you listening to at that stage? University days, I was working my way backwards through the canon of rock music through the 70s and the 60s and even the 50s. So I was very interested in, I mean, I didn't really, you know, I didn't really work through, like, for instance, the Beatles catalogue till I was 18 or 18 or 19. And then I, I was buying lots of Rolling Stones albums and then every Bob Dylan or Tom Waits album I could get my hands on. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of that sort of what you might call classic rock now. There is a lot that can be taught about music, but there's a lot that can only be learnt on the road. What has the road taught you as a musician? I, I always found being on tour something I really looked forward to. I look, always looked forward to getting to the airport or getting in the van, but it was quite tough once you got out there, um, especially if it was a long, if it was a you know, sustained sort of thing. And with Augie, we did, you know, occasionally we'd do like a six, seven-week overseas trip or, you know, some pretty sustained stuff through Australia. And it was it was very tiring. You know, we'd often talk about match fitness or tour fitness, and it's not something that's easy just to step into. And we do it less, but we still do it. And I'm always wanting us to do more just to get that, fitness, just to feel that it's, I don't think it would ever feel natural, and maybe she has her own private jet. It's a strange way to live. In Augie, we always talk about the rot, the amount of time you're just sitting around waiting, waiting for someone to get ready, waiting at an airport, waiting at a rental car place, waiting at the 
hotel lobby waiting at a venue for a sound engineer to turn up, rotting. You have to work very intensely for a short amount of time at night to do the show. There's plenty of other stuff that has to be done, and especially now we're self-managed and self-tour-managed. There's quite a bit going on. But there's also a lot of just waiting around. I learned that it wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I wasn't sorry when Augie kind of slowed down. You know, we stopped for four or five years. And at that point, yeah, I never missed, I never missed the touring after that. But it was really fun. And especially when you have, when it's new to you, very exciting. Um, and sure, it's, you know, something most people would want to do, would want the chance to do and, um, you know, should be. Because, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a good, good experience. Has the touring at all been inspiring a new record for Augie March? It's when we most get together and when we're together, you find those little connections that, that help you. So I think it is. I mean, I don't think it's an explicit thing, but it, it's there. I always want us to play more shows because then you, you get that sort of um, empathy, musical and otherwise, that, that you need to, to make good music we haven't I mean we we did quite a bit of uh, Moo Your Buddy Choir and we did do One Crowded Hour immediately after a very long tour in the US where we'd played a lot and you're really well oiled and I remember that and we were very we were very you know we, we were all in pretty good form at that time but I think yeah, I think that's that's the main thing you get from the road you get very you get very focused on, on your music and your playing and you get beyond trying to remember what's the next chord of this song or what's the next, what's the next lyric. It, you know, that's all, that all becomes, becomes very fluid for you. So you, you get to that deeper place. New album being penned while you've been on the road? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's definitely new music. Uh, Glenn is pretty consistent like that. I mean, it's one of the best things Augie's got going for it is that Glenn, I don't think it's easy for him to stop writing. We're going to do some recording pretty soon and I think there'll be a new, a very good chance we could have some new, a new record or some new music out in 2020. It's, yeah, it's early days yet, but we're going to, we're going to do some recording soon. It could be a bit, you know, this could be a bit more electronic. The demos that Glenn's done have a lot of, yeah, sort of, synthesized kind of parts. There's a lot of sounds that I'm hearing on the new songs that I've probably been trying to get onto Augie Records for the last few albums, but haven't really succeeded. If we go down that path now, I, I will feel that my, my sort of nudging has been a bit of an influence on it, but I'm not quite sure what I'll do. I might try and arrange some horns for it. It doesn't feel like there's a lot piano and organ, my usual things, but who knows? Once we get in the studio, Almost anything could happen. Kenan, an absolute pleasure to have a chat with you. Good luck with the rest of the Augie March tour. Thanks for your time. Thanks, John. Kenan Box, keyboardist of Augie March, who can be found online at augiemarch.com. Their latest album is Budokins, out through Caroline.
Sounds like it's going to be a massive year for Augie March. It's January now. What could happen in the next few months? Who knows? But a new record sounds like before the end of the year on the way. Also, just to let you know, there's more of that conversation where we talk about conversations as well as kids TV. I had a two-part conversation that was in the second part. Um, I might roll that out as we get closer to some singles off that album that may be on the way from that very band. Next time here, though... You know, as much as I've said, the music's not about dwelling on anything. When you do write music that's from personal experience, you do end up dwelling on it. But this year I was doing honours in the pop music course at uni and kind of using D'Urberville as a project for that. I had to write a paper about my creative process and what I ended up doing is I I wrote as though the songs were about a character called D'Urberville. So... I've written these songs about my experiences, but then I was named this character D'Urberville and reanalyzed the songs as being about her, not about me. And that was a really interesting way to create a bit of distance. Though I did end up learning things about myself through that, which was interesting. Mallory Steele talking about her D'Urberville project and the release made from Steele. Also coming up, after Mallory will be... We first met Adelita 2015 when we won a competition that Claire Bowditch was running for her Winter Secrets tour where she got people to cover her songs and pick people to come and perform them at her tour and we did a cover of one of her songs, I Thought You Were God, God. yes, and she picked us to perform at the Corner Hotel with her. Adelita was supporting her at that show and we met her then and we thought she was awesome and then later on I think I think maybe a year or two later I did a songwriting mentorship with her through the push we just got along really well and kind of became friends and she also has a hobby of taking photos and doing films and she was like why don't we make a film clip together? So we've made three film clips with her. Charm of Finches will be our special guest here on the show. Thanks very much to our feature guest, Keenan Box of Augie March. Radionotespodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia.